Uh, today we're going to begin a new section in our Statement of Faith. And that's a section on Jesus. And as always, I have a couple of book recommendations for you um, on this subject. Uh, first, on the back table, I see there's still a few copies of Greg Gilbert's little book, Who is Jesus? Uh, which is, I don't know if I've talked about it to you guys yet, but it's really a great introduction to not only Jesus, but the Bible as a whole. Um, what he does, you guys are familiar with the Bible Project, right? Those videos? It's sort of um, like their theme videos, where they trace through Scripture something that leads to Jesus. He does that a lot in that book very well. Uh, shows how things in the Old Testament were pictures and shadows of the coming Jesus. So anyways, it's a very good um, introduction to Christ, introduction to the Scriptures. Uh, really good to help orient somebody, especially who's new to Christianity. So um, if you want to read that and maybe give it to somebody you know, I would recommend that. Uh, next book that I would commend to you is one by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. It's probably the number one top-selling Christian book this year. It's kind of exploding. Uh, and it's pretty good. I, I should have a few copies. They're taking forever to get here. Um, but uh, it's it sort of is trying to... Uh, how should I say this? It's trying to... Um, answer the question, what is Jesus like? like? What is his heart? How does he think uh, from Scripture? And it's, it's a very interesting, well, well worth uh, reading. Okay, uh, the section in our statement, we'll just begin by reading this. And uh, as we go, if you have any questions about it or something that you think, well, that doesn't sound right or I don't know, whatever, uh, let me know because we do, again, our statement of faith, we rewrote it last year, but it's very much so you know, flexible if we need to reword something. Obviously, the first time you write something, there's going to be edits, um, especially if there's any spelling errors. I'm trying to catch all the typos in here as we go. Um, so anyway, please point those out. Uh, but here's the section, the statement as it stands right now. It says, we believe that Jesus the Christ is God the Son, that he has eternally existed without any beginning. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sin and rule them righteously. Jesus became human through the virgin birth while simultaneously keeping all his divine essence. Jesus is the perfect, sinless God-man who voluntarily died on a cross as a sacrificial lamb of God to pay the debt of sin for all who repent and believe on him. Three days after his death, Jesus rose bodily from the dead, and he is now at the right hand of God the Father and head of the church. Jesus eternally lives as the Savior, Prophet, Priest, and King of all the redeemed. His victory over death and his bodily resurrection assure victory and a future resurrection for all in him. Jesus will return in power and glory to establish his kingdom on this earth at his second coming to judge the world in righteousness to fulfill God's redemptive plan. Questions? Or anything in there that sticks out to you a little bit? I had a few things. Um, first, and these are all pretty much minor details. First, where it says um, three days after his death, this is nitpicky, but technically that's not accurate. Jesus rose the third day. Okay, he, he didn't rise the fourth day, which would be three days later. So I don't know. That's just something that stuck out to me. Uh, and then something there that was worded a little ambiguously uh, or could be misinterpreted. He is now at the right hand of God, the Father, and head of the church. Makes it seem like the Father is the head of the church, which is not what is intended. 
Um, so grammatically, that may need to be re rearranged a little bit. Um, but those are minor details. For the most part, I think it's well written. Um, but anything that, that sticks out to you that you have a question about, or that you think doesn't make sense, whatever. I didn't give you very much time to read it, sorry. Um, I do like the way that it's laid out. I think uh, I like the chronological order that it takes, starting with the identity of Jesus and then going through his work on earth, what he's doing now as our prophet, priest, and king, and then his future work. I think that's a, a nice way to lay it out. And we're going to work through it um, over the next several weeks. We're going to do like we did with the scripture where we kind of went line by line through it. Um, so that's what we're going to do starting today. Uh, today we're going to begin with the identity of Jesus. This will take at least two weeks, um, and today we're really starting with that first line, we believe Jesus the Christ, and so we're, that's basically as far as we're going to get today, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Christ is not his last name, okay? Uh, it's a title. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, okay? Does anybody know offhand what Messiah means or Christ means, literally? Pop quiz, Bible trivia, no? Anointed one. Anointed one. So, uh, John 1, verse 41. This is Andrew. He first finds his own brother Simon, says to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And so there you see, uh, even if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, you can see it right there in English. It explains to you that, that Christ is simply, um, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Messiah, Messiah. So, Whenever you see Jesus Christ, that's just saying Jesus the Messiah. Um, and Messiah means anointed one. Uh, the Old Testament, we'll talk more about that in a minute. The Old Testament had prophesied that there would be someone who would come in the future to Israel bringing deliverance. Uh, for example, Isaiah 61 verse 1. These words will probably sound very familiar to you. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Uh, that would be one of the most famous texts. <clears throat> that is a prophecy of the Messiah, what he would do when he came. And when Jesus arrived, he explicitly claimed to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In Luke chapter 4, uh, we read, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's almost a direct quotation from Isaiah 61, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all, this, all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So clearly, Jesus understood himself to be the fulfillment of, of uh, Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. He believed that he was the anointed one. Uh, and you notice there in the, those verses that, Isaiah had said that the Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is upon me. He's anointed me uh, for this ministry. Uh, Jesus is not the only one. We don't have to take his word for it that he's the Messiah. Okay, There's a lot of other proof uh, in the New Testament. 
For example, Luke chapter 2, the famous Christmas story where the angels say to the shepherds, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. And so even at Jesus' birth, the angels said that this baby is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Uh, not only the angels, you have Simeon in the same chapter. Uh, Luke 2.25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, which would be a way of talking about the Messiah's arrival. That he would come, bring deliverance to the Jews. This is what they were expecting. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came into the spirit. Uh, sorry, he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the the parents, this is Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, "Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation of the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel." So you have Simeon told by God that, you, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Uh, and clearly he believed that this baby was him. Uh, even in Luke, you have the demons testifying to the fact that Jesus was Messiah. Luke 4, verse 41. Uh, demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Over and over in the New Testament, the testimony is that Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills all of the prophecies of Christ. Uh, in fact, one of the greatest evidences of the inspiration of Scripture is how all of these prophecies of the Messiah uh, find their fulfillment in Jesus. Prophets that lived hundreds of years apart from one another and centuries before Christ wrote very detailed prophecies about Jesus or about the Messiah. And Jesus fulfills them. Uh, for example, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. I'll talk about the term Emmanuel next week. Uh, but just notice there the prophecy that a virgin would give birth to a son. This would be a sign from God that this was the Messiah. Micah had prophesied of Christ that he'd be born in Bethlehem, which was a very small, kind of obscure town outside of Jerusalem, uh, a random place for the Messiah to be born. Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so even in there you get a little hint uh, that Jesus is the eternal God. Um, but all of these prophecies end up finding their fulfillment in Christ. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Matthew 1. I did not type these up on the screen, um, so you have to follow along on your own Bible or in a, a, the Pew Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 1. So we've got prophets that have said that when a virgin gives birth to a son in Bethlehem, that is the Messiah. But there's even more prophecies about his birth than just those. Uh, we're not going to take time to look all of these up, but just listen to, uh, as we read this portion in Matthew, how frequently Matthew says uh, this or that was done in fulfillment of what the prophet had written. Uh, let's see here. I just realized I don't have all of these in front of me either, so let me turn there. Okay, Matthew 1, uh, starting in 18, verse 18. 
<clears throat> now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's a more thorough explanation in Luke's gospel of you know, the angel coming to her and telling her that you, know, you would be uh, giving birth as a virgin and all that. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus, that name Yeshua, means uh, Yahweh saves. It's a contraction of those two words. Um, so you've got, in fact, um, well, this, now I'm getting more complicated. But uh, you all know jo Joshua and Jesus are very similar names. Uh, in fact, in Greek, they're translated identically. Um, and both of them mean Yahweh saves. And, you know, when, when people thought of the Messiah, the Jews were looking for a Joshua-like figure, a military leader that would you know, overthrow the Romans, deliver them, just like Joshua had brought in, uh, you know, overthrown all the Canaanites and given them that land um, originally. And so th this is what they were expecting Jesus to do. Uh, of course, what they missed out on was the fact that, you know, Jesus came to deliver us spiritually, not just to set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. Uh, but anyways, all of that to say, he, he's given the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7.14, what we just read, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. The next verse, uh, starting in chapter 2 there. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, uh, again, we have to go to Luke to see why he was in Bethlehem. But you remember the uh, Caesar had uh, ordered a taxation, a census, in order to tax people. And so everybody had to go to their homeland, and since Joseph was from Bethlehem, that's the whole reason they're in Bethlehem. Because uh, you remember, they, they lived, Joseph and Mary, up in, in Galilee. Uh, they were only down there because of this census. And so, you know, you think, well, that's kind of a random event. Well, Matthew shows us here, this happened, it, you know, it brought them down to Bethlehem right at the time Mary was going to give birth in order to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, I'm sorry, Micah's prophecy, that he would be born in Bethlehem. So in those days, Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's right next to Bethlehem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he goes to the Bible scholars of the day and says, uh, you know, somebody's saying the Messiah is here. Can you tell me where he's supposed to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, uh, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers in Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child when you have found him. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, that's not what he's planning to do. He's planning to kill him. 
after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Of course, he was deceiving them. They departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he arose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. And then Matthew says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is a quotation of uh, Hosea 11. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so you've got one prophecy that says Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. You have another prophecy that says the Messiah is going to be called out of Egypt. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region that, uh, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Um, that little note there about Rachel is, you remember in, in Genesis, Rachel died in Bethlehem. That's where she was buried. And so this is just a, an illusion saying there's going to be weeping and lamentation uh, in Bethlehem because of you know the slaughter of these children. And so even Herod killing all of these babies in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of a prophecy of the Messiah. Verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, I'm uh, sorry, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, because remember they'd fled there, uh, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He arose, took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, being warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So he goes back up to the north of Israel and Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. So you have in those, those verses are so incredible to me, just to think of all of the events that had to take place just perfectly to fulfill all of these prophecies that seem conflicting. I mean, how can the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, and yet God says, out of Egypt I've called him, and yet he's going to be called a Nazarene? Those are three very different locations. And in these verses, Matthew explains how it all happened. That he was in Bethlehem because of the census, he fled to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill him, and then he comes back, but he's scared of Herod's son, Archelaus, so he goes back up to Nazareth. All of these seemingly random uh, choices that Joseph was making were actually fulfilling uh, specific prophecies of the Messiah. And so all of these prophecies fulfilled in one person. Um, and, and there's many more that we could look at. If you read the book of Matthew, you'll find over and over he says, this was done in order to fulfill uh, such and such prophecy of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 um, are some of the most detailed prophecies of Jesus' death. Uh, you'll find, in fact, if we have time 
We'll see how far we get. If we have time, we may go back to some of those. Uh, but they mentioned there that he would be killed among thieves. Uh, you remember he's got a thief on both sides of him on the cross. That soldiers would cast lots on his robes. Uh, that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. All of these specific details ended being fulfilled in Jesus' life. And again, if you really want to trace these down, uh, read through Matthew's gospel, and every time you see him mention, this is a fulfillment of such and such prophecy, go look it up, and you'll see um, dozens of times throughout Matthew's gospel in particular, uh, where his goal is really to convince Jews that Jesus was their Messiah. So all of that to say, uh, the Bible is quite clear that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, now, let's talk about the, that term, anointed one. Uh, that title, what is that talking about? I think the Heidelberg Catechism uh, gives a good explanation of this. Question 31 says, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. Our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Okay, so in the Old Testament you have, and he mentions them there, three offices, three types of people that were anointed. Uh, can you think of an instance in the Old Testament where somebody was anointed with oil? Old Testament. Think of... What's that? Aaron the priest, okay, that would be one. Can you think of any others? Old Testament people that were anointed with oil. I think, um, was it Elijah or Elisha that anointed Jehu to be king? Uh, or and more famously, maybe David, right? Jesse goes to the house of Jesse. Uh, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and, and anoints David with oil. So the anointing was a way of signifying that God had chosen this person for this specific role as either a prophet, a priest, or a king. Those were the three um, offices in which someone would be anointed. So Aaron, of course, would be an example of a priest, um, and prophets and kings likewise would be anointed with oil. And so Jesus, we'll talk about this some later, how those three offices are all fulfilled in Christ. Um, and this is not, you know, some construct that Bible scholars have come up with. In the New Testament, we see the writers say, Jesus is our prophet, Jesus is our priest, he is our king. Um, especially the priest, you know, the, the king is pretty obvious, right? You read the Gospels over and over, Jesus says, I'm the king, this is my kingdom. Um, if you read Hebrews, you'll find um, very detailed explanations of how Jesus is our high priest. And we'll talk about this some uh, in the coming weeks. And so, prophet, priest, king, all three offices are fulfilled in Christ. And so uh, this, I think this is why he's given that title of anointed one, uh, because he is the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king. Um, so he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. I don't think I want to go farther into the notes than that, because the next section is on uh, the deity of Christ, which is going to take us a little bit of time. Um, so I'd rather save that for next week. Any questions on anything we've covered so far? If there's not, then we'll go back to... Uh, some more prophecies. I, I've heard, I don't know about, enough about st statistics to prove this, um, but I've heard there are, I think, 300 or so uh, prophecies of the Messiah uh, that Jesus fulfills in his life. 
and again, some of them are just minor details, and um, others are more, you know, broadly speaking. Um, and somebody said, some statistician said that the likelihood of one person fulfilling all of those prophecies would be like if you covered the entire state of Texas. I forget what the exact number was, something to the, you know, 20th power, ridiculous number. It'd be like if you covered the entire state of Texas with silver dollars so that you're, you know, wading waist deep, waist deep in these silver dollars and you picked up one coin that was marked. That's the likelihood of one person fulfilling all of these things. Again, I can't verify that. I'm not a statistician. Um, but it is incredible to see how Jesus fulfills so many different prophecies uh, in his life. Psalm 22, again, these are not on the screen, so uh, if you want to turn there. Psalm 22, uh, this is a, it's a psalm that Jesus refers back to when he's on the cross. Uh, psalm 22, starting in verse 1, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, we all instantly think of Jesus there. Well, many of us don't realize he's quoting Psalm 22. And so I think the reason he quotes from that is to um, is to kind of cue you in that what he's doing on the cross is fulfilling Psalm 22, which maybe nobody had read that uh, in the past. Uh, so, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let's keep going down. I want to uh, get to some more specific um, things there. Verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Uh, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You hear the mocking of the people. What does that remind us of? Well, in Matthew's gospel, you have people um, mocking Jesus on the cross, right? Saying he saved others, he healed others. Let, let him save himself. Uh, let's see. Down to verse... 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. For you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Okay, that's another allusion to what happens on the cross. When the nails are put through the hands and the feet, I count all my bones uh, they stare and gloat over me. Now, that would be um, prior to the crucifixion. Remember, Jesus was scourged, right? Which is where they would take a whip, uh, similar to a cat of nine tails, with pieces of you know glass and things in them that would um, sink into your flesh, and then they'd rip it. And so when it, he says there, I can see all of my bones, um, that's referring to this cruel torture of the Romans, where they would literally rip the flesh off of a person. Um, continuing on, verse 18, they divide my garments among them. Uh, for my clothing, they cast lots. And again, exactly what happens in Matthew. You see the soldiers, um, they take his, I forget if it's his, his inner tunic or his outer tunic, whichever one, and they you know, rip it apart at the seams. But then his coat is all one seam, so they don't want to rip it and you know, divide it among the four of them. And so instead, they cast lots to decide whose it would be. Uh, so you've got all of those, I forget if there's other, details in here or not. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there may be more in there. Isaiah 53, though. Let's go to another one. This will be the last one we look at. These are just detailed prophecies of Jesus' death. And, you know, you got to think, these things were written hundreds of years 
before Rome had even taken over Israel. Uh, the Romans were the ones who came up with crucifixion. It didn't exist prior to that. And so the fact that you have all of these prophecies of a death that they would not have even been familiar with, um, you know, how, how on earth can you explain this? Isaiah 53, uh, let's see, we'll start in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his, with his wounds we are healed. Uh, this is a great, uh, a great text to take Jews to, especially because one of the main objections that Jews have is their expectations of what the Messiah would be were not fulfilled in Jesus. So again, they were looking for this Joshua-type military figure who would come in and deliver them from the Romans, and instead the guy dies on a cross. You know, what's going on there? Um, and so this is a good text to show them, well, you know, this is what Isaiah said would happen, that, that God would lay the sins and iniquities of humanity on the Messiah's shoulders as he dies. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and a sheep uh, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What would that be a fulfillment of in the New Testament? Can you think of anything? It's like a lamb to the slaughter. He doesn't open his mouth. Right. So you've got Pilate, then you have Herod. Uh, mocking Jesus, you know, smacking him on the face when he's blindfolded and saying, who hits you? You know, prophesy to us. Uh, and Jesus doesn't answer a word, Matthew says. Why does he do that? Well, he's fulfilling what Isaiah said, that he would go silently uh, without objection to his death. Uh, let's see, verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Uh, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken from, stricken, for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Okay, there you, again, you have specific prophecies that he would be killed alongside wicked men. And you remember on the cross, he's got a thief on both sides. Okay, and with a rich man in his death. Who's the rich man? What's that? Close. Nicodemus helped him. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, he was the one whose cross Jesus, or I'm sorry, whose tomb Jesus was buried in. Um, a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, he comes to Pilate and requests the body of Jesus. And so he and Nicodemus take the body of Christ down, bury it in his tomb, his family tomb. And so he's killed among wicked men. He's then buried in a rich man's tomb. Although, uh, the rest of the verse there, nine, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And so you see the sinlessness of Jesus in that verse. Verse 10, 
Yet, although he was sinless, although he had done nothing wrong, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, uh, which is probably a, a indication there of the resurrection, that once the price for guilt had been paid, he would prolong his days, meaning he would be brought back to life. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Uh, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Christ bears our iniquities. He offers us his righteousness. All of these are things brought up further in the New Testament where Paul says, uh, for example, I believe it's Paul, it might be Peter though, uh, that says that Christ who knew no sin was made sin for us, that he might bring us to God. And so he takes our guilt on himself on the cross and offers us his righteousness. Uh, where are we at here? Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And of course, that's what he's doing now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of the saints. Um, and that's where you see some of the priestly work of Christ. He makes the sacrifice as the Lamb of God on the cross. And then as the priest to God, he intercedes on behalf of us, saying, you know, God, accept this sacrifice on their behalf. And so, anyway, all of that, just to say, I mean, good grief, there are some very detailed prophecies in the Old Testament um, that when you read them after reading, you know, being familiar with the Gospels, I mean, this is just so clearly talking about Jesus. And I've never heard a Jew be able to explain uh, what Isaiah 53 is talking about. It does not fit with their idea of the Messiah. Uh, I remember once John MacArthur brought this up uh, in an interview, I think with Ben Shapiro, who's a Jew. Uh, he brought up Isaiah 53 and just asked him, well, who's that talking about? And there was a lot of stammering and not very good answers. Um, because, I mean, what do you say? It's just, it, if that's not a clear reference to Jesus, I, I don't know what is. So, anyways, I, I, there's a lot more we could go to. Again, there's hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah um, that we could look at. But those are just a few uh, to show you um, when Jesus came claiming to be the Messiah, this was not an empty claim. I mean, it was things that were beyond his control, you know, prior to his birth and even after his death. Uh, some Some people, I think Christopher Hitchens objected to some of these fulfillments of prophecies of Christ because he says, well, Jesus kind of fulfilled his own prophecies, right? He did things in order to fulfill. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of exact examples. Like when he got a donkey and rode it in on Jerusalem, you know, and it says, well, this was fulfilling this prophecy that he would come in on, on a cult. He says, well, that's not really, you know, that, who cares about that? Jesus was the one who arranged for the donkey. So that proves nothing. Well, that works for the donkey, but that doesn't work for where he's born. Uh, that doesn't work for him being brought to Egypt as a little baby and then going up to Nazareth, like he had no control over those things. Uh, the soldiers casting lots on his clothes, he was dying, you know. So uh, many prophecies totally outside of his control. And yet the choices of other people, and this gets into uh, really interesting concepts that God knows, you know, our choices, what we're going to do centuries before we even do them. Because how else could he say? They're going to cast lots on his clothes. You know, they're going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Those types of things are what we think of as, well, free will choices of human agents, and they are, and yet God knew those with such specificity that he could 
prophesy in the future of even actions of people that did not exist yet. Um, so anyways, all of that to say, Jesus, according to the Old and New Testament, is the Messiah. Uh, I know it's not controversial at all here, especially. Uh, but I wanted to, to, you to kind of see in Scripture um, prophecies of the Messiah and how they find fulfillment in Christ. And again, there's many others you could look at. Uh, many of the Psalms, many things in Isaiah. Uh, but those, especially Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, I think are some of the clearest, most detailed uh, depictions of his death. Questions? Yes. Yeah, it's funny. That's a <laughs> that's such an oft claimed uh, thing with uh, manuscripts of the Bible, where they'll say, "Well, the Apostle John he actually wrote his gospel after the Council of Nicaea." That was a claim for a long time. Council of Nicaea is three twenty five. That's almost three hundred years after Jesus died. And they're saying, well, he just, you know, because nobody actually believed Jesus was God that early on. And they could make that claim because there weren't any manuscripts at the time that dated back that far. Well, then they discover P52, uh, which is possibly, uh, trying to remember the exact dating, possibly first century, more likely second century, but still within, you know, within 100 years of Jesus or less. Um, and that, I mean, there goes that argument. Obviously, John's, John's gospel existed way hundreds of years prior to uh, the Council of Nicaea. And the same thing with, with Isaiah. That is true that atheists for a long time claimed Isaiah 53 was written, what he's saying there, was written after Jesus died. And so somebody thought, oh, I'll make this prophecy of Jesus dying on a cross with all these details to validate Christianity um, and kind of slip that into Isaiah. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, I believe, in the 1960s uh, in Qumran. A really cool place. I've been there, and they've got uh, there's these caves where they found in pottery in, in these jars scrolls, the oldest scrolls in the New Testament that we have, um, about 200 years prior to Jesus. And they're on display there. You can see them all behind the glass. And uh, the Isaiah scroll is one of the best preserved scrolls uh, in that whole collection. It's very valuable. Um, and so again, that just proves well. No, this prophecy, you know. Uh, there's a Dead Sea Scroll 200 years before Jesus that says that obviously this prophecy was written you know, prior to Jesus. And so those claims uh, hold no water. So yeah, there are many, many things you could look at on that. If somebody ever, if you ever are in a conversation with a Jew or a Muslim who doesn't accept that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, these are some interesting texts to go to and say, well, what do you do with this? Uh, because they claim to believe the Old Testament. Um, and yeah, they have a really hard time with some of these texts. All right, uh, next week we're going to go into the deity of Christ. We talked about that some during our discussion of the Trinity, but we're going to go a little bit further uh, since this section is specifically on Jesus.